This is episode number 20, The Rise of the Adoptee with Rishma McClintock. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of adoptees and foster youth who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we start today's episode, I'd like to invite all of our listeners to our upcoming seminar on June 23rd in Austin, Texas. Come join us for a day of networking, workshops, insightful speakers, and an opportunity for you to connect with hundreds of others who are going through a similar journey that you are. For more details, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash hear me now. Now, let's get back to today's episode. It was humiliating. Every time they left the household, whether it was to the grocery store or the mall, my placement in the family was questioned. She said, people wanted to know how much I cost, where I came from, how my parents found me, and where my real parents were. Questions that made Rishma feel embarrassed. Questions that made her feel unsafe. Questions that ignited her current work, Dear Adoption. Without further ado, please welcome Rishma McClintock. So much for taking the time to share your experience with us and be a guest in our podcast. And what I would like you to do is tell our listeners a little bit about your upbringing and background um, and why you were adopted, where you were adopted from, and then we'll move into some of the other areas from there. Wonderful. Sounds great. I was born in Calcutta, India in March of 1980, and I was adopted three months later um, and grew up in Portland, Oregon. Um, the story I grew up with was that uh, was the story my parents were told by the adoption agency in Oregon, and that was that I had been uh, abandoned, uh, born and abandoned on a street corner in mm -hmm. Calcutta, um, that I was uh, really unhealthy and very small, malnourished, and I was taken to this orphanage um, called IMH, International Mission of Hope, in Calcutta, and initially I was not up for adoption because I was so small. They said that I weighed one pound and... I was so small, there was no way I would survive, um, but I did survive, and so I was sent to the U.S. at three months old, and my parents, uh, who adopted me, had um, uh, a biological son, my older brother, um, and he was four years old mm. when they uh, began the process of adopting me, and they, you know, they had really good intentions in adop in, uh, regarding adoption. They just um, had been told what so many have had been told years ago and what so many are still told, which is that there are, is an abundance of orphans and they need homes. And the best way to do that is to um, oftentimes um, bring them to other countries um, like the United States. Um, so 
my parents just wanted to provide a home. They were not looking to be uh, white saviors or um, anything of the sort. I, I really, we've had a lot of conversations surrounding this throughout my life, and I really um, just believe that they um, felt like if there was someone out there that they could help and raise and give a home to, they would do that. Um, they did, again, they already had my brother, um, and they just wanted to grow the family, and that's how they chose to do so. Um, so I, after I was adopted, and I, I came to the U.S. in June of 1980 at three months old and my parents then adopted my younger brother domestically um, six years later so I have an older brother who's their biological son and then I have a younger brother who was also adopted um, but he is Caucasian so he um, looked like the rest of the family so while he also was an adoptee um, it wasn't as obvious mm. um, and you know if you think back to 1980, it wasn't as common to see a white family with a child of color mm -hmm. um, or even, you know, even as many mixed relationships, you know, it just wasn't as common. Certainly there were. Especially in um, the U.S. Yep. Exactly. And we weren't, you know, trailblazers, my family, by any sense. <laughs> but um, basically um, everywhere we went, we were inundated with questions and um, I mean, minimally lurking eyes, right? That people just stared at us. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, today families, you know, their families look any number of ways and nobody bats an eye. You know, there's um, mixed race families and there's, um, you know, different type of parenting and different, you know, single parents and, uh, you know, different types of relationships. And back then it just wasn't common. You typically saw, you know, a white couple or uh, a, a couple who were uh, people of color and their children, you know, mirrored them. I didn't have that growing up. Mm -hmm. And so every grocery store we went to, every time we went to the mall, um, my placement in the family was questioned. And so I know, you know, we hear this a lot from adoptees, especially from my generation. Uh, people wanted to know how much I cost. You know, where did I come from? How did they um, find me? Um, where were my real parents? All of those things. You know, I didn't know as a child that, all international adoptees for the most part were experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And so these kinds of things were just humili humiliating for me. Um, I hated um, when my parents answered the question um, because I just wanted to, you know, slink away into a hole. I was so embarrassed that I didn't look like them. And, and to understand that fully, you have to understand that I felt so safe and so protected and so much a part of my family that it even today you know I'm getting ready to turn 38 and I still you know my reflection in the mirror still surprises me sometimes I think of myself as a white woman because my family's mm. white that's what I see and so as a child it was so you know frustrating that people would question me and my place in the family because I just didn't feel that way on the inside and so you know, minimally, it just felt rude and intrusive. And, and it is. It is mm -hmm. rude. It is intrusive to say those kinds of things and address those kinds of issues in front of a child. Um, I certainly understand curiosity. I am nosy by nature. <laughs> you know, I see things. I want to ask questions. But, you know, it's one of the things that we really have to work on as a society is what's, what's appropriate. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I have said many times I had this ideal childhood. I really did. Um, my parents are wonderful, wonderful 
people. They were really good parents. We had a really open home where we discussed all things. We were a very affectionate family. Um, we listened to each other. We talked things through. I always felt safe. Um, I only really struggled when we were separated at all. I didn't like, you know, if my dad went on a brief business trip or my brothers went to sleep over at someone's house. I, I personally didn't like going to sleepovers. I wanted us to all be home, all be together, under one roof all the time. Um, I only really had, you know, what I can see as an adult as anxiety is when we were going different places at different times. I just wanted us to be together. And again, I can recognize that now as really an adoption related issue. Mm -hmm. Um, where as a child, I didn't have the language to express that. Um, so my parents were wonderful parents and my extended family was wonderful. I was loved so well. And, um, I never felt like I didn't belong with them. I never felt like I'm in the wrong house. I'm in the wrong family. These are not my people. Um, I felt good, uh, you know, for the, you know, barring any just normal childhood stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I really had this wonderful upbringing and the only thing that, you know, my parents, um, I wish they would have done differently. And we've discussed this a lot, you know, since I've really come out of the fog, um, and I've brought them with me out of the fog. I mean, they, you know, my mom passed away a couple of years ago, but, you know, up until the point that she passed away, I mean, both my parents were kind of coming out of the fog with me and my brothers, we got to kind of do it together as a family. And I think, you know, from what I hear is that's really rare and it's been, you know, invaluable to me to have their support and understanding as we're all kind of, you know, learning about adoption truth and reality because our adoption world was very small. Things were very simple when I was a child because everything for us just clicked. Mm -hmm. um, and then the only thing that, you know, the regrets my parents have and the regrets I have are just that they did share my story so freely. Um, you know, my, they were proud that I was their daughter. Um, and if there was one thing they would go back and change. And if there's one thing I could change, it would be when we were in the grocery store and someone wanted to know about me that we wouldn't launch into my story that my parents would have had, you know, the training and the language and the understanding to say, you know, we're, this isn't the right place to discuss our daughter's place in our family. And ultimately that's not your business. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't articulate to them that I hated that. Um, I didn't know how to say that. I didn't know. I didn't even understand why I disliked it so much. Mm -hmm. um, again, looking back, I can see that that was the way my adoption loss grief manifested it it manifested in these really subtle ways um that we we didn't understand as a family and had we you know had my parents had proper education regarding that um and had i been you know talked to about that those things would have been a lot more manageable but when i look back at my childhood um my most humiliating moments you know i never felt humiliated hum excuse me I never felt humiliated in my home. I never felt unsafe in my home. And as soon as we left the walls of our home and when we were together, when we were in grocery stores and, you know, at Nordstrom or in a restaurant, that is where I felt embarrassed and unsafe and unprotected because mm -hmm. outsiders could, you know, get to me, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You bring up a very good point and it, it's still very much prevalent in today's world, you know, racism and stereotypes. How, so I know you mentioned briefly how you dealt with it, and it sounds like a lot of it had to do with your support group. 
you know, mm-hmm. your, your parents and your, your family and everyone that knew you. Do you have any advice for people who are dealing with it right now? Like, what can they do in today's day and age that can help them in those situations when they do face stereotypes, when they do face racism? Is there anything that they can do on their end to help them cope with some of those issues? I think what's really important um, for, first and foremost, for adoptive parents, um, and I mean, I guess this goes across the board with parenting in general, is it's really important to have a pulse on society and culture and racism. I know we're, you know, the, the climate in our country uh, right now is, is, very, is very tense and very polarizing. Um, and, and whatever side of the you know, political spectrum you, you tend to be on, mm-hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter because there's tensions you know, across the board. And so and there, there always have is, been. Yes, exactly. There always have been. They're very, I, I don't know how you say, they're, they're really highlighted right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like the, the first front thing, uh, you know, happening, you know, right now. And I understand that. But it has always been that way. And I think that it's important for parents, adoptive parents specifically, um, and people of color um, to really have a pulse on what is happening. And I, I say the thing that's first and foremost is safety. Um, the reality is, I don't know if I was just, you know, a clueless child or what. I didn't recognize any of those things as racism when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Now I can kind of see that obviously that's what did it. You know, they, they could see me coming from a mile away. My family was, was, you know, very white and I was very not. And so it was so easy to, you know, to see us and immediately, you know, have all these questions and inquiries. And I think that what's really important is for parents to understand that it isn't their job all the time um, to explain things to anyone inquiring um, if it puts their child in an uncomfortable position. Mm. And that's, I think, while I do think it's important for adoptive parents and adoptive families and adopted people to help educate society on what this is like, you know, this is what you and I are doing right now. It's important to educate people and help them understand when you're in a grocery store with a child may not be the time and place to do that. Mm-hmm. Every situation doesn't call for education. Um, and I think, you know, my parents were trying to do that. And, you know, again, they had the best of intentions and had they known, and, and you know, it really devastated my parents uh, when I started sharing some things like that as an adult, that how small it made me feel, how insignificant, how it was the only time I felt isolated and separate from them was when they were telling my story in public, you know, they were crushed by that. Of course, that wasn't their intention. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why it's important for us now. We, we know better and we need to do better. And so I think that in every situation for me as a, you know, like I said, I still have a hard time. You have this huge identity crisis. And so it's very difficult for me to see myself as an Indian woman or even as a person of color. Um, I feel like I'm becoming more aware of it. And some of that does have to do with our current cultural climate. Um, but that being said, I don't, it's not my job to put myself at risk or to even make myself vulnerable in every situation to educate someone else. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's okay to just say, Oh, it's not a good time. Sometimes it's okay to deflect. Sometimes it's okay to need to go to the bathroom and walk away. We don't have to uh, divulge all the information all the time if we aren't comfortable doing that. And I feel like 
the education that maybe you would give someone is um, is less meaningful if you have to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation to deliver that. Yeah, and justify yourself. No, I completely agree with you. I think right. the, the other thing that's important within all of this is that, you know, obviously it took some courage, which developed over time for you to finally share your story and share the things that made you uncomfortable at the time. And Absolutely. I, I think that's another part that's important for parents and everyone else to understand is that the reason why you didn't speak up, speak up at a certain age, the reason why I didn't speak up at a certain age is because, you know, th those times when we were younger, there were so many things going on. Like for me, one of the things was that, you know, I felt like, and, and this is not regarding my adopted parents, but more so my life in Russia. Mm -hmm. I, I was in a, such a position where I truly felt like my voice would not be heard. Right. And, you know, it was probably a similar thing for you. And there was also a lot of other things that were going on, I'm sure, within your situation, such as you, I'm sh maybe you didn't want to feel like a, a burden to them. Maybe right. you felt like if you were to say something, then it would trigger something else. And all of a sudden, this small, I guess, problem escalating into this huge thing where at the end of the day, you don't even know if you can ever be part of the family again because of such right. secret like that. That's a great way to put it because that is a huge reason, again, that I didn't recognize as a child. But, you know, I really rejected my Indian culture. I really rejected anything that wasn't my white American family. Um, and so that's exactly the reason is because I didn't want them to know that I ever felt separate from them. Mm -hmm. And I used to feel I didn't want to talk about adoption. And a lot of that, you know, it's funny because now that's all I talk about. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I didn't want to talk about adoption as a child. I didn't want to talk about how uncomfortable those situations made me because I never wanted to bring it up because, again, I couldn't recognize this as a child. And now I can look back and say because I was terrified because I didn't want to lose what I had because I didn't want to highlight our differences. I felt mm -hmm. like if I highlight our differences, if I bring them up, if I put them in the forefront, then that's all anyone will see. I don't want to magnify them. I want to minimize them. Mm -hmm. And that kept me safe. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, for children who struggle with that, I know a lot of um, adopted children, you know, I, I spend time with a lot of different adopted kids, and I know that's a huge thing for them. And, and I feel like, you know, in some sense, we, the burden, it should not be on us, right? The burden shouldn't be on adoptees as mm -hmm. adults or as children. For us, we have, are the, you know, we are the only part of the, you know, the triad, the, you know, uh, birth parents, um, adoptive parents and adoptees. We're the right. only part of the triad who, who really had no choice. And so that we shouldn't have to carry that burden. But the reality is we do. We do carry that burden, and that's why it's so crucial for people who are adopting or have adopted. I don't care what stage you're at right now. I don't care if you have a 40-year-old daughter like me. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, if you have a person who's adopted that you love and care about um, or in your life in any capacity, that burden does not rest on them to educate and to make you feel better and safer because we're kind of just trying to make, keep our own personal infrastructure in place all the time, mm -hmm. and we carry that burden all the time. Everywhere it never, we go, yeah. Right. It never, you know, I'm, I don't know how to say this and, uh, uh, you know, but 
I'm in, in some sense, I'm one of the lucky ones, right? I have had this wonderful family experience. Um, that experience, unfortunately, the downside to that experience is it made me really naive to what so many other adopted people were experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, my, that's why I said earlier, you know, my adoption world was so small. My parents' adoption world was small because it was so good for the most part. We had this one thing that was huge and a really defining part of my childhood was those public humiliations that I, you know, kept secret and never shared with anyone. But it was really the only thing that we had that um, was a struggle for me from my childhood. And so because my family has been so supportive and have, you know, come out of the fog with me and, you know, my, my dad even says now, you know, like we just would have done so many things so differently. And Mm -hmm. um, it's okay for my dad to say that he doesn't know if, if he would adopt internationally, had he known then what he knows now, that doesn't hurt my feelings. That doesn't make me feel like he doesn't want me to be his daughter. I appreciate it so much because he understands adoption trauma at this point. And he just didn't know then. He just didn't know. And I'm not saying also, you know, here, here we go. People will be, you know, frustrated, but I'm not saying that all adoption is wrong all of the time. I, I, there's not many things I think you can say anything, you know, is absolutely across the board. Um, I believe there is a case for adoption. Um, I believe it is, they are, the cases for adoption are far, you know, less and, and few between than we have as far as we've taken it. Um, that being said, I just appreciate that my family has kind of understood what this is. And my dad, you know, my parents are able to say, um, man, it really would have been good for you to have stayed in your country and have your culture preserved. And if there was a way to do that, yes, we should do those kinds of things moving forward. Mm. You mentioned the fact how you avoided some of the things about your culture at a time. Could you take us through that defining moment, if you can recall it, when you had made the decision and found the courage to speak up and be the person that you've want it to be? You know, as a child, I, um, I'll i expand on that just briefly um, regarding rejecting my culture. Mm-hmm. When I say rejecting my culture, I mean I hated anything Indian, hated it. Um, I didn't like Indian people. I didn't. I always felt like they were looking at me. I don't know if they were or not, but I was convinced <laughs> that everywhere I went, when there was Indian people, they were looking at me. And I used to tell my parents, they won't stop staring at me. Um, I was just nasty and... Um, I hated, you know, being, because this is a thing. If mm-hmm. I'm an Indian, then I'm not a part of my family. That's how it felt. It felt like it's one or the other. You can't be both. Who can be both? It mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. And that's, you know, part of my identity crisis, even as an adult. Um, I, I felt like I couldn't be both. And so I hated Indian food. I mean, I didn't really like hate Indian food. I loved it, but I didn't want to tell anybody that. <laughs> um, you know, I hated all these things. My adoption agency primarily... Um, or maybe even exclusively, I'm not certain, but adopted, you did adoptions through India and they would have these picnics. We called them the Indian picnics every summer. And I hated them. I, my parents would take me every year. They really wanted me to, you know, they tried very hard to incorporate my culture, which is why my mom made Indian food for us. And we talked about Indian things and, um, but I was such a jerk about it. I can't believe they even persisted because I made it just unbearable when they would talk about it. And I'm not really even taking that on as, you know, I mean, that's how I coped Mm -hmm. with the loss of my culture was just by rejecting it. 
So I would go to these picnics with my family and I just hated it. I didn't want to be around the other Indian kids because I wanted to be like the white kids. I didn't want to be like the Indian Mm. kids. And I felt like if we go to this, it's like there's these Indian kids and they're all playing and then all the white adoptive siblings are, you know, hanging out together. And it just felt weird to me. And the truth is, you know, that's my perception of what it was like. I don't really think that was reality. There wasn't, you know, segregation. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, white people here and brown people here. That's not how it went. But in my mind, that's how it felt. And so um, as I got older, I became more curious about India. I think a lot of that was just maturity. um, And maybe even just as, you know, I grew up, my confidence in my family and that foundation had really, you know, just being, uh, just was continually firmed up every year of my life, right? I'm safe Mm -hmm. here. I'm good here. I'm a part of this family. They're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. We are good. And so that sort of just gave me the freedom to start exploring. Um, I really started thinking about India a lot my freshman year in college. um, And I did go on a mission trip um, with my college to uh, back to India for the first time. I did not go to Calcutta where I was born. Um, And it was a really you know, it was an interesting experience. I was emotional. I was very immature. Um, so I was very self-involved. Uh, you know, I thought about myself for the whole time I was there. I was supposed to be serving people. And, you know, hopefully <laughs> they didn't know that I was as self-involved as I was. But, you know, it was a, it was a great um, – I would say the thing that I loved about that was um, there were so many people who looked like me. And I hadn't experienced that uh, growing up, obviously. And so, you know, my communities were really um, – Uh, They were, you know, sort of diverse, but, you know, only in really public places with a lot of people. So, like, the mall was diverse because there were so many people there. And so there was just, you know, bound to be some people of color. But, you know, in my school or in my church, um, in my family, I was the only person of color on both sides. Um, And so those things were, you know, really um, important. That, That made a really big difference and a really big imprint on me. So when I went to India and saw Indian people, I certainly loved that. Um... But the real, the time that it really clicked for me was after I got married um, and then started thinking about having children. And I realized, you know, I had this realization that most adopted people have that my first child would be the first biological relative that I would ever see or know. And I thought, geez, that is just mind blowing to me. I couldn't even fathom it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we were married for um, about five years before we had our daughter and during I had a really difficult pregnancy. And so I was on bed rest and I remember laying on my couch one day and I think Judge Judy was on or something, you know, daytime TV. It's a curse of bed rest. But um, <laughs> I was laying on my couch and I remember thinking for the first time I had this connection to my Indian mother because we were both pregnant with daughters 30 years apart. So I was thinking 30 years ago, I was in her body, this woman who I have not spent much time thinking about. And then it just kind of opened this. I can hardly talk about it. Um, It just that was the beginning of this this wound. It was like a small paper cut um, and, 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 and the surfacing of my grief. You know, I had like this little paper cut and it was irritating but constant, you know, it's like, you're always aware of it. And then you bump it on everything. And so you just becoming more aware. And then it, it grew, it got a little bit bigger and a little bit more painful. And, and you kept thinking, Oh, well, surely this will go away soon. And this is weird. And, and then it turned into this massive bleeding wound. And that is 
what my adoption grief is. So I'm this, you know, this uh, person who's grown up in this home, who's had this, you know, essentially as close to a perfect childhood and family situation you could have. And then um, all of a sudden, you know, I have my daughter, she's just, she's everything. Um, And this, you know, I can see myself in someone for the first time ever. And I, and not just the, the physical seeing her, it's this emotional connection. It's this thing that I can't describe. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm basking in the joy and this joy is just, it runs so deep into my bones. I mean, this joy that I have over becoming a mother is just, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's indescribable. It would be, you know, any attempts to describe the depth of joy really are futile because I can't even put it to words. While that's going on, parallel to that, I have this grief because I've opened this wound and it is just gushing. And there's parts of me, um, and I want to be really clear, it not in a suicidal way, mm-hmm. it's not something I've struggled with, but there are parts of me that feel like I'm going to die if I don't, you know, bandage this wound or mask this wound, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out how, how am I feeling this depth of joy and my life is as good as it could be. Everything's so good. I have this wonderful husband who I love and adore, and he feels the same for me. I have this beautiful daughter who is dependent on me, and I can see myself in her and all of these things. And all of a sudden, everything that I didn't have appeared. Mm. And But there's nothing there, right? So it's just, it's like a hole appears, an empty hole. And there's something that's supposed to be there, but it's not. And the things that are supposed to be there are biological family looking back not Mm -hmm. just forward you know my daughter is my biological family looking forward but where are the people behind me um the genetics that are running through her body and mine it's like I never thought of them as they pertain to me but now that I have this extension of me in her it's very confusing you know it's very confusing that she is also missing that family Mm -hmm. she is missing those biological connections because all she has on this side is me if you look at my husband's side They've got generations of, you know, stories and information and medical history and all these things. And I have nothing. It starts and ends with me. How, and, do, you, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, it's really sad for me. And if I were to put it really simply, I would say I have this incredible amount of envy um, that I have to manage um, regarding everything she has on my husband's side. I'm very jealous of that. Um, And for people who aren't adopted, it's very difficult to understand because, and and many people who aren't adopted have said this to me. Yeah, I've never thought about that. I've never thought of knowing all my biological relatives and all my history as a, as a plus, because it's just normal. You Mm -hmm. just do. So for me, um, you know, my husband's family is wonderful. I adore them. I love them. Um, But I'm very jealous of what they have. And I don't, I struggle with talking about it. And that's where, you know, I'm a severely flawed person. And I, I don't want to talk about all of that all the time because in a weird way, it hurts my feelings mm-hmm. um, because I don't have that to, for her. I, I, my brothers, I adore, I have the two greatest brothers on earth. I adore them. Um, and we're very, very close. And, you know, as I said, my mom passed away a couple of years ago, but we were very, very close and I'm very, very close to my dad and I, you know, we communicate regularly and they've really walked through the trenches of all of this grief with me. Um, but, you know, I wish they were related to her. 
they aren't. They don't have a biological connection to her. And that is, you know, that carries a lot of grief for me. Um, so I have to focus on the things that I do have. But I feel like I've done that all my life because I've had a very full, very good life. And so this is another really important thing for people to understand about adopted people is that be- with that wound. So I've got this joy here on, on one part of me. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not true. I, I shouldn't say it that way. I have this all-encompassing joy at one time, and at the same time, I have this all-encompassing grief. So it isn't like sometimes I feel joy, sometimes I feel grief. I carry them both mm. all the time, and that is a very challenging thing to do. And I have all this guilt, right? Because, well, I'm one of the adoptees who got this great family and has had this great life. So what am I complaining about? There's adoptees who have not felt safe in their homes, who have, um, you know, been abused or felt, um, you know, all the grief for them manifested in more obvious ways at young at a younger age. Um, all of these things, and I think, well, I have everything, so I don't, so I have this empty hole. I should really just be grateful, right? Because mm-hmm. society has 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 given this imposition of gratitude to adoptees that we were all saved, that all of our lives are better. And I should just, you know, pick myself up by my bootstraps, be thankful for everything that I have and move forward and and leave that hole behind. And I just I tried. Um, I really, really tried to do that. And the more that I tried to quiet um, my grief and the more that I tried to, you know, temporarily, um, you know, dam up this wound the, the more freely it flowed. And I just kind of got to a place where I couldn't, I couldn't contain it any longer. And so for me, I just started talking about it. Mm. I just started talking about it with my husband. And what I was surprised to find is that everybody listened in my world, in my life, they listened and they heard me and they understood. And why do you think that is? Why do you think people listen to what you had to say? (sighs) I really struggle with with answering this question because mm-hmm. because so many aren't heard. Um, and I even feel guilty about that. I mean, the guilt for an adoptee just goes on and on and on. It's a <laughs> river that never ends. Um, but, you know, I don't know what you call it. I don't know if you call it luck. I don't know. You know, I'm a Christian woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know if you call it, um, you know, I don't know if you just, I don't know. I don't know why. Do you, they, do you think it could ahead. be partially because it was a different narrative than what people were used to hearing about, you know, just everyday life? Do you, do you think that maybe played a role like it was new information or a possibility yes. to, to for them to take in new information? So therefore, that's what captured their their attention? Yes. You helped me answer this question because <laughs> you touched on that is really important to say. And, um, what it, yes, I'm so glad you said that. That's like, we're in sync here. It's so good. (laughs) Um, I do think that's part of it because, because you're looking at someone who has had this really good life and they know that I'm not, I've not faked it. I've not, you know, it hasn't been perfect. And, and please know that's, you know, I'm not insinuating by any means that, you know, we, I had this perfect perfect life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I would say, especially because of the stories, um, that I hear now from so many adopted people, uh, you know, my, I, I had it, I had it pretty good. Um, and I'm really, 
you know, I'm really thankful for that. But I also, you know, so many, so many people haven't. And I think you're right. I think that because I was saying, look, I love my life. I love my family. I feel so connected to them. And even though I have all of these things, there's this grief that's bubbling over because all of the things that I have gained do not cancel out all of the things I have lost. Mm -hmm. And I think that we look at adoption with such a narrow view, especially, you know, as I said, I'm a Christian woman. I grew up in a Christian home and especially the church. I'm a little frustrated with, with my church right now. Um, because not my church specifically that I attend, but the church as a whole, Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we, we, we take this very narrow view of adoption that, um, that says, you know, there are orphans, we're called to save them. We need to rescue them. And it is better for them to grow up in, you know, two parent white families, you know, middle-class than it is for them to, you know, starve in their countries. And the reality is so much of that is just untrue. And the other part of that that's so important is that when you elevate my parents as saviors, as people who saved me, who rescued me, you minimize me Mm -hmm. to a a charitable good deed. And that's not what I am. I'm a person who lost a family and a culture and things that I will never, ever understand and that will never, ever be fully healed for me. Um, And the reality is, I think that because I was able to say, look, And I didn't have to say it. My family knows how much I love them. I didn't have to defend it. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of that, you know, they were like, wow, that's that's really surprising. And I think for my parents, you know, the way I said that my grief manifested in these, you know, odd ways as a child, they could see it clear as day. All of a sudden, as soon as I started talking about it, they were like, oh, my goodness, that's why you never wanted to go to a sleepover. You know, I, I could probably count or I don't even know if I'd need all five fingers on one hand but I could count the number of times I slept at people's houses who were not my who were not my family Mm -hmm. Uh, you know I slept over at cousins I was I was comfortable with my cousins Um, I didn't really do sleepovers at my friends houses because I didn't want to leave my family and I think my parents I was terrified of being kidnapped I mean I mean most you know we talk about that as kids but you know, most kids don't obsess over being kidnapped. I thought for sure I was going to be kidnapped every day. I worried about being kidnapped. And I think some of those things now, you know, make sense. And I remember my parents, I'm sure they were like, are we seriously having the kidnapping conversation again? Like you're, it's very unlikely you will ever be kidnapped, you know, but I was terrified of that. Hmm. I think so this of that is... separation. Absolutely. No, I completely understand that. Uh, this is a perfect transition actually to get into some of your work which deals with, you know, creating this community for adoptees. So what I, what I would like to know is, can you recall one of the first times when it finally clicked for you and it made sense that you had to create this community for other adoptees to educate current and future adopted parents? What was that like? Well, I think that as I started, um, you know, coming out of the fog myself, um, as I started, you know, recognizing this adoption grief and the losses, I started talking about it with my family first, with my parents. As I said, we talked about everything openly. So I just started sharing it with them, sharing it with my brothers, of course, my husband first and foremost, and a couple of close friends. And and then I started writing it, writing about it. I started a blog and I, I wrote, you know, publicly about um, adoption and, you know, some of the loss and um, started kind of going into that. And then I was 
contacted by a friend from high school I hadn't seen or spoken to in, you know, about 17 years. And he contacted me and um, wow. wanted to talk a little bit about India. And he said, you know, he asked me, have you been back to Calcutta? And I said, I've been to India, but not Calcutta, not anywhere near Calcutta. And he said, you know, what if we filmed a documentary about your first return? Uh, what do you think about that? And I thought, you know, I, I mean, I honestly, my first thought was that'll never happen. But OK, sure. <laughs> you know, so it just, it's OK to say yes, because the uh -huh. likelihood is, you know, it's, it's not it's not likely going to happen. So, you know, fast forward, it, it happened. We, you know, we created a um, Michael is my director of this film. Calcutta is my mother. And he, you know, came, uh, flew to Denver and filmed a trailer um, to raise the money for the film on Kickstarter um, and then we ran this campaign. We shared this trailer, ran this campaign, and we raised some money so that we could go um, to Calcutta and mm -hmm. he could film my first return. And um, so as that was happening, when my trailer first for the film first came out, um, I started, I was just inundated with uh, emails from adoptees um, with people saying, oh my goodness, you know, I feel the same way. Some of the things you said in the trailer really resonated with me. Um, or I've been back to my country. Here's what I can tell you. It was incredible. I mean, inundated. I mm -hmm. had hundreds of emails within the first week um, of the trailer going public and um, launching that campaign. And um, I also had a lot of emails from people. Well, let me stop. First, I would say I was so well received. I had never been in an adoption group on Facebook. I had no idea that you know, adoption lands, as often as they call it, existed. <laughs> I had no idea there were other people out there talking about adoption. I, I really, I mean, I don't know if that's arrogance or what. <laughs> I thought I was the only one, you know. And I, all of a sudden, you know, there's these groups on Facebook with people who are adopted, specifically people adopted from India, specifically people adopted from Asian countries or mm -hmm. domestic adoptees or, you know, adoptees, um, you know, of a certain age group or what, you know, all these groups and you know, I started getting into these groups um, and I just couldn't believe there was this whole community out there that I never knew existed. And um, a lot of the emails I received, in fact, um, I would say probably most of the emails I received were support. Um, and then a lot of those emails, the ones that were supportive even, were people saying, you're being so well received and people are receiving your story, but nobody will listen to me. Mm. And I felt you know, kind of this, uh, I mean, more guilt, more adoptee guilt, just keeps rearing its ugly head. Um, and I thought, well, geez, like, here I come with my fancy trailer that I have nothing to do with, by the way. That, that was all Michael. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did just did a really good job um, with this trailer. But, you know, I thought, well, here I come and I've got this fancy trailer and, you know, the supportive family and people are listening to me because I, I felt that I felt very well received. But here come these emails, adoptee after adoptee after adoptee saying, nobody will listen to me. Here's people telling me their stories. My, you know, I want to talk about adoption, but I can't because it hurts my parents' feelings. I want to talk, I want to search my, my, for my family, but I can't until my parents die. I want to say some of the things you're saying. I want to go to my birth country. Um, I, all these things just coming, you know. And it just felt like blow after blow after blow. And I don't mean that like I like I like, oh, that was so hard for me. I just mean that I was so naive. Mm -hmm. I had no idea um, what so many adopted people were dealing with. I had no idea how the world was not receiving them. 
I had no idea that adoptive parents essentially had taken the floor, had taken the mic, and they were telling the narrative. They were telling their children's stories. They were telling how hard adoption was for them. They were talking about how expensive it was. They were talking about what's the right thing to do for adopted people. And this is important to say, there are trailblazers out there in adoption land. And I know you, I mean, you're doing incredible work, but I know you will agree with me when you say there are so many people who have been in the trenches in adoption land, trying to elevate the adoptee voice for decades. Absolutely. And they have, you know, Mm -hmm. yes, still are incredible, incredible people. You know, I was thinking about like Kevin Ballmers, Amanda Woolston, the Vance twins, Angela Tucker, a good friend of mine, Stephanie Mae Stats. She's, um, she writes a blog about adoption and she, you know, has this incredible following of people who, um, you know, she, because she just says the truth. She just tells the truth. Mm-hmm. And the reality is there are so many people who have come before me and really built this foundation that now I get to stand on. I get to do this now. I have the privilege of helping elevate the voices of adoptees in our community because these other people went before me. And so I'm not doing anything new. I didn't create this thing out of nowhere Um, this is because all these other people, and I I shouldn't have even started naming names really, because there's too many to to miss. There's too Mm -hmm. many to forget. But, um, my, my point is that so many people have been doing this for so long. I was totally unaware of it. And then basically when my, because I was so well received, I started feeling bad about all the people who weren't And it. Frankly, it pissed me off. I was, you know, I kept thinking, why, why are people listening to me? And the reality is this. I have two thoughts on this. One is I think that they listened to me and received me well because of some of the things I said in the trailer. I didn't talk so much about my grief in the trailer. I mostly talked about my family is wonderful, but I'd like to connect to my culture. And I think that because of what I said, because of how it was presented, people didn't, adoptive parents, adoptive families, people in the adoption industry, people didn't feel threatened. Mm -hmm. Now, what I discovered in Calcutta was an exorbitant amount of grief that I never saw coming. I talked about the massive wound before, but I had no idea what a massive wound was <laughs> until I got there. So people are really in for something different than they, they signed up for initially when they were giving me all their support. They might not be as thrilled now. But, <laughs> um, but the truth is, I think that um, it didn't make people feel defensive. And so they really supported me. And what I've learned is that um, as soon as people start saying, adoptees start saying things like what I lost, if they, if you lead with what you lost, it just makes people mad because it takes away that you were saved from anything. Mm-hmm. If we talk about our losses first, then, then, then that becomes the focus. And you know what? It really needs to be because we lost first and some people never gained close to what I gained. Mm-hmm. Not everybody got that. I got lucky. I don't know. I don't know how you want to spin it, how you want to say it, but I did. And so many people have just really, really struggled. And these are the people who have risen from the ashes. I'm telling you, so many of the people who didn't get lucky like I did, they're doing way bigger and better and more important things than I am. I am determined to help do my small part to elevate the adoptee voice. But that's exactly what it is. It's my small part. There are so many people out there working so hard every day, um, to, to build this community and to, to elevate our voices. What happened with where Dear Adoption came from was it, it, really the idea came to me at 1 a.m. on like a Tuesday. And I um, just kept thinking, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. If I felt selfish, I felt, I just felt bad that 
um, I was getting to tell my story and I know how good it felt Mm -hmm. to be able to put my story out there and to share my feelings and to be authentic and raw. And I thought, well, everybody deserves to do that. And there needs to be a space for adopted people to do that. And it needs to be exclusive. It needs to be just for adopted people because so many of the other spaces, one, they, um, and I'm not talking about adoptee run spaces. I'm talking about, you know, adoption websites and adoption mm-hmm. uh, magazines and things like that. So the adoptee spaces, there's a lot uh, where people have done this and it's incredible. But I'm talking about the other, you know, really public spaces are sharing, you know, first and foremost from the adoptive parents perspective. Um, they do some natural parent stuff, not enough. Um, and then they, you know, they touch on an adoptee story here and there. But it all... Um, goes with the narrative that they want to put out there. And I just wanted adoptees to be able to share whatever they wanted from Mm -hmm. whatever perspective, whether they are for or against or indifferent about adoption. Not many are indifferent. Um, Or if they wanted to be angry, then they can be angry. Um, If they wanted to be vulnerable and sad and whatever, if they wanted to be grateful, then they get to choose that. We get to choose if we want to be grateful or not. The fact that gratitude has been imposed on us is a really cruel, weird thing, you know, that people would just say you should be grateful for your life. You know, Um, I I just don't you know, I just don't comprehend that, you know, school of thought. So basically, I just wanted to create a space and and dear adoption, the the whole letter format came out as I just, you know, that that Tuesday at 1 a.m. I was just thinking what would be approachable for people? Because not everybody wants is a writer. And one of the things I love about Dear Adoption is that most of the people who write for our site are not not writers. Mm-hmm. It's not what they do. But it's some of the best writing I've ever, ever, ever read um, are the people who share at Dear Adoption. And I think that because the letter format, the the way that you know it's it's framed, is really inviting. And it also is very, um, I don't know, it like releases this, this block in so many of us. And so I wanted people to tell adoption whatever they wanted to tell them. I wanted people to say, dear adoption, I hate you. If that's how they feel, then they can say that. Mm-hmm. Or if they say, dear adoption, I'm grateful and I'm pissed. Or dear adoption, I'm not grateful. You know, whatever it is, the, the stories and the things that have come out of there are absolutely authentic and vulnerable and raw and inviting because it's personal because they're letting you into this personal space where they're writing a letter to adoption saying what they want to say what they need to say what hasn't been heard for so long some of these are the cries of their infant self you know so much of what's out there is them um you know sharing these things that they've buried and stuffed for so long because people won't listen and the reality is this it's frustrating because so many people still won't listen but I also see a shift. I see a shift and we are building strength as a community and growing. And we've got, you know, every, all the work you're doing is incredible. Mm-hmm. There's so many people out there who are building, you know, with you and I during this time that we are all starting out. Um, there's so many people doing that um, and working and growing our community. And yes, there's a lot of tension in adoption land. There's a lot of infighting. It, it frustrates me to no end. Um because it, it, it's, it's, it's not productive. That being said, I stand by that everybody gets to share. I don't care. And at Dear Adoption, we don't turn anyone away. We do have guidelines. But every adoptee is allowed to share there as long as you adhere to the guidelines. Um, I'll never turn anyone away. 
everybody can share. If they want to say, dear adoption, I love you. You're the best thing ever. Everybody in the world should adopt. That's not my view. But they get to say that because they're an adopted person. And dear adoption is a neutral space where adoptees just get to share. I love that. I, I love the whole foundation and how you built it because, you know, we, we try to follow a similar structure. And one of the things yeah, that do. I noticed as well at the beginning was that most people aren't writers and most right. people do want to be heard. And so um, I was I was just curious to learn from your end how you guys are challenged tackling that problem because you know on our end one of the things that I guess has worked relatively well is that we were able to create a questionnaire based on people's stories so when it first started off we received um, like five to ten submissions of Mm -hmm. people who were comfortable as writers and were comfortable sharing their stories so when they submitted those one of the first things we did was we read through all of them and we compiled a list of general questions that people can use that aren't comfortable or not comfortable, but just don't know how to tell their story. Right. And then we started to, for, you know, we just formatted, formatted that questionnaire so that when people submit their answers, then we were able to edit it and send it back to them. And, you know, 99% of the time we'll receive comments saying, okay, you need to change this or like, this is not what I meant. But I figured right. that, that was a good starting point because I love we've had so many people that want to, you know, express their feelings and also use this as a form of therapy and help right. them develop that courage to tell their story. So there, there are a lot of things that you have to read between the lines to really understand, like, what is this? A, why is this in existence? How is this benefiting people? And the other thing that you mentioned about community is that... At first, when we started Overcoming Odds, one of the biggest um, challenges that we had to overcome was that people oftentimes would say, okay, this is just like any other blog. You know, right. what, like, where's the effort? Like, why do you need X, Y, and Z to maintain it? Why can't you just let people just be who they are and let them do their thing? Right. But the thing is, it, it really, it's much more than a blog. And the way that I try to break it down for people is that um, using two submissions. So one submission, you know, picture a uh, full-blown story, but Mm -hmm. the the difference is that the person uses his or her first and last name. Right. And then the other side, you have the same story, but the submission is from anonymous or either first person or first name or either last name. Right. And most times people don't recognize that. And people don't want to or don't take the time to try and understand why does that happen? Why is it that one person decided to put themselves, their entire identity behind the story, and then another person wrote it as anonymous? Right. And And the findings and the things that we found out of this was that people are still scared. People are still scared, just like you said. People are afraid of the fact that, oh, what if my parents find out? Or I'm going to do it when my parents pass. Or I don't want to disappoint them because they're still living with them. So that if their parents did find out some of the things that do happen within the household that the kid is not pleased with, then there are there's a set of consequences that may happen from that. Right. And I think so that I, I love that you briefly touched on that because it's such an important point is that it's not just a blog post. 
it literally is somebody else's perspective, somebody else's right. life. Right. And it's not any different from the times that you share it with me in person or through some sort of chat online. Is right. that it's still a part of you. Right. Yeah. I think that I love the way you put that. And I think it's so it's so important for um, when people are sharing. I love that you do the questions because I think that, you know, it provides kind of a structure and a jumping mm -hmm. off point. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people are like, I don't even know where to start. Or people exactly. ask me all the time, do you want me to write on a certain subject? Or, you know, do you want me to talk about, you know, my reunion? Or do you want me to talk? And I always say, you're writing, you know, for us, because of the, you know, the format, we say, you're writing a letter to adoption. Mm -hmm. What do you want to say? Mm -hmm. And there's something about that that um, that is inviting. You know, anybody can write a letter, and you don't have to be a writer to write a letter. Um, we all we write emails every day, right? And so whatever it is, there's something about that format that that makes people um, not makes them believe, but that is true that that truly anyone can do it. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't. And and some, you know, certainly some some you can tell. Oh my goodness, this person's a writer. But, you know, I'll tell you, a couple of our pieces that have had the most circulation and um, have had the most, you know, sets of eyes on them um, are people who wrote for, about adoption for the first time. There's three I can think of right now that have got are, are on probably my top 10 circulating pieces. Mm -hmm. And all three of those, um, they actually all happen to be women. It was the first time they ever wrote about adoption was their Dear Adoption letter. Mm. And it's mind blowing. You know, and I think that's what's important for us to understand is that when we get, when we create space, when you created Overcoming Odds, when Dear Adoption came to be, um, years ago, Pamela Caranova started How Does It Feel to Be Adopted? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Haley Radke has her Adoptees on podcast. My friend I was talking about before, Stephanie Mae Stats, she, you know, has this incredible blog and she writes these posts on uh, Facebook that are so articulate and uh, concise and to the point. And before, you know, when we do this, when we create space, people, it makes people want to share it. In, it's an invitation. And the reality is it has taken so much. It takes so much effort and so much work, but it, in some sense, forces people to listen because if people are talking, people will start to listen. They might not always like it. They may push back. Of course, we get pushed back all the time. I get mm -hmm. from adoptees all the time. I get, oh, dear adoption is terrible it's not you know they don't speak for all adoptees and uh, we don't claim to dear adoption is a sampling of whoever decides to write for dear adoption right. and i don't choose what goes there uh, like i said as long as it adheres to the guidelines which are very you know loose guidelines essentially we you know you can't um you know bash any person by name or an organization <laughs> by name because you know we don't want to have to deal with that but mm -hmm. you know other than that anybody can share their story and everybody's welcome to do so and we have to continue inviting people to speak we have to create space and platforms for them because everybody's perspective and story is so different and the reality is too you know you have a different when i'm talking to you in the conversation that you and i have you know i share certain things if you sent me these questions and i were to sit down and type them out um you know the the truths would still be the same the facts would still be the same but i'd say it in a different way yep. so there has to be these different kinds of you know, platforms and forums, you know, we've got to have the podcast, we've got to have, you know, the interviews um, on online, we've got to have the, you know, space where people are sharing their stories, or just answering questions about their stories, all of the different things provide another way for us to have an outlet. And I think it's so important. And 
you know, a lot of the struggle within, um, you know, um, within the adoption community, within adoptees specifically, is that, you know, some adoptees are totally against adoption and some adoptees are not. And, you know, we have these different views. And I don't, I don't, well, I don't, I mean this respectfully. I don't care what your view is. I care what your story is. Mm. I want you to be able to share your story um, as an adopted person. And so, you know, I stand by that every adoptee ought to have a space to share their story, whatever their point of view is, whatever their experiences is, experiences are. That's the point of Dear Adoption. That's the point of, of overcoming odds. Mm-hmm. That's the point of these unique spaces that we've all created that we are sharing our personal lived experiences. And nobody can argue with my personal lived experience because mm-hmm. it's mine. Mm-hmm. Because it's mine. They haven't and, lived it. Right. They haven't lived it. And I just think it's really important that we, we keep you know, the fighting, the, the, the tension, it will not, it will not go away ever. Of course, in, in any group, there's going to be that. But I think that if we keep pushing for and supporting each other, um, you know, we, we have our potential, um, you know, adoptees are some of the most resilient people out right. there. It's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, every, you know, every once in a while I get a, a, you know, really nice compliment. Somebody will say, Oh my goodness, you're, doing such good work. And I just, I'm like, I don't deserve that credit (laughs) and I'm not being, this isn't, you know, false modesty. You know, really I, it's because the people who really, really have lived through hell Mm -hmm. are are determined to share their story and change the world. I just started a website and people are doing that. It isn't me. It's them. It's our Mm -hmm. community of people. So it's, it's incredible. the, The rise of the adoptee. That's what I call it. I just, it's incredible. And I cannot even imagine um, where we're heading. And yeah, it's hard to get people to listen. It is because the same narrative has been, you know, repeated for decades and decades and decades. And um, again, I, you know, I'm an eternal optimist. I see a shift. I also get very frustrated and very discouraged. <laughs> um, you know, you know how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a lot of up and a lot of down. But the reality is um, we just keep, you know, trudging through it. We just keep moving forward. I, I think it's a really exciting time. Um, and it is not easy, but it's, it, it's exciting because, you know, I, I don't know. I, my mind is, is blown every day by the people in our community. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the fact how adoptees are resilient. What does it mean to be resilient in your eyes? Um, I think that, that resilience is just, a, you know, ultimately a, a determination and a, a mission, um, a goal, and a passion, you know, put into action. So it doesn't, resilience doesn't look the same for everyone. I know a lot of people, um, a lot of adopted people who their resilience shows through in getting out of bed every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of adopted people whose resilience shows through by, uh, you know, taking the time to tend to their mental health um, or their resilience, you know, shows through with their, you know, commitment to their job or their family or whatever, you know, resilience isn't always something big and bright and bold and in your face or something unique even, right? It, it, resilience is often, you know, very simple. And if you, you know, we have a lot of, we've, we have a big suicide issue in our community and it's very frustrating that the world doesn't seem to take that seriously. So we have lost a lot of people in our community. That being said, We've also not lost a lot of people. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people out there who are so, well, let me pause for a minute. Not to say that the people who we have lost were not resilient. 
uh, you know, people can only take so much. So that that's certainly not what I'm implying. But we have a lot of people who um, pr- push through really hard things every single day. And it just, uh, you know, a lot of that is what fuels me. Um, I think that for me, um, my resilience has manifested in, um, in adoptee advocacy. And it's not something I ever, I mean, geez, you know, even eight or nine years ago, I never would have imagined this is what I would be doing with the bulk of my time. Um, but now I feel like it's one of the reasons, you know, I exist. And I was so ill-informed and so naive about what adoption was like for so many people um, until I started coming out of the fog and reading and, you know, learning from the trailblazers who've gone before us and listening, so much listening, we have to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that um, just kind of, for me, uh, you know, fueled this, or ignited rather, and now fuels this this passion to um, do what I can to, to um, elevate the adoptee voice. And I think that, um, you know, it's hard. I, I go back and forth um, because on one hand, I've, you know, poured myself into this adoptee advocacy and creating space for other adoptees. And on the other hand, I also have to tend to my own loss and grief. I'm still grieving really heavily. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that will go away. It will ebb and flow. It will shift and change and present itself in different ways in my life, you know, as I move forward. But um, I get the most, I don't know, is the word satisfaction? I get the most peace from, um, from uh, you know, elevating other adoptees, from giving them the opportunity to share and speak. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm just determined to not lay down. And I, I, there are times, I'm sure you've experienced this too, and I know a lot of other adoptees in our community have, where I feel like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is stupid. <laughs> because people are so determined to misunderstand and to misinterpret and to twist our words and to say that we you know, need to learn to be thankful or to say that we're martyrs or mm-hmm. all these things. It's just like they're determined to misunderstanding. And that can be a very frustrating thing to be up against. Um, I take great offense to anyone telling me that I appear not to be grateful. Um, I take great offense to that because first of all, who has any right to tell, you know, to assume anything about gratitude about any one person? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm incredibly grateful, but am I grateful for all the things that I lost through adoption? Not really. And I'm you, not. You get to define it too for yourself. I think that's right. an important part because very it, important and gratitude so and, two, mm-hmm. yes. And that's the thing, you know. I love my family. I've had this great family. Um, the two, the, the, my gratitude to my family and love for them has nothing to do with them saving me from an Indian slum. Right. Gross. That's not. That's not something for which to be grateful. They didn't save me. They're not my saviors. They loved me and cared for me. They listened to me. They, yes, they met my needs, um, you know, on a daily basis as all parents do. Um, they're, they're wonderful people. I think they're extraordinary just because I love them, but they're not extraordinary because they adopted me. Right. They're not extraordinary because they rescued me. That's not, that, that doesn't work in my, my brain and my thought process. And I don't think it does in theirs because Again, that implies I am less than. It implies that I am their good deed for, you know, the decade or whatever it is. Um, And so I get, you're right, I get to define 
what gratitude is to me and, and why I'm gratitude and for what I'm grateful. And I think that that's just a really important thing. And, and resilience, um, like I said before, it doesn't look the same for everyone. And sometimes my resilience is just to, um, you know, get through a day. I take a lot of breaks from social media. Um, there's a great online community, but it's, it's also, um, can be a really tough space. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't read all the articles about, um, you know, the, our flawed system. I, I, I try to keep myself as educated as possible, um, so that I have a pulse on what's happening and in the adoption community at the, you know, same time I have to take breaks because it's a lot to bear. Um, and I am trying to bear my own grief on its own and I'm trying to not bear the grief of my community but um, help to you know broaden our audience and get people to listen and within our community you know there's a lot of people who say things that I don't necessarily agree with or who believe you know things that I don't necessarily believe but I still want to hear from them I I still want to stop and listen to them because Mm -hmm. they have something to teach me I don't know it broadens your perspective Yes, it broadens my perspective. There is so much I don't know. There is nothing significant or wonderful about me. I am not well-educated. I am not, you know, an internet master by any means. Um, you know, I I eke my way through running Dear Adoption. I take a lot of breaks. Um, I have to do those things to take care of myself. But um, there are extraordinary people out there who have a lot more education than I have who have a lot more experience in adoption land than I have. And I am determined to listen to them and to learn from them, whether or not I agree with their point of view or not. I have to learn those things because I barely know anything. Mm -hmm. And everything I've learned has been from people in this community. You know, I have my experience to base things on. And then I have all the people that I'm listening to, to base, to base my, my mission on. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the big things I've been working on a project lately um, for family preservation. And I'm getting ready to launch a website with, I, I mentioned her a couple of times, Stephanie May stats. Um, we're getting ready to launch a website, um, for, uh, family preservation. And, um, there's a lot of people doing really good work in that. And, um, it has nothing to do with being anti-adoption and it has everything to do with keeping families together. And why wouldn't we want to do that at all costs? Why wouldn't our last last, last resort be to separate families. So our first priority needs to be preserving families, keeping them together. And so I'm really excited about that project. That's another way that, you know, I feel like my um, mission and my purpose has been defined is elevating the adoptee voice and preserving families. Hmm. I love that. I love that whole mindset and everything that you said about as far as the future for it. I do, I do agree with you that, and this is just the thing in life, you'll have a lot of people who do agree and who disagree with whatever you have to say. And I think, I think it's important to have both right? because that's what gives you that perspective. That's what gives you the knowledge. That's what defines your learning process is right. that stepping back because, you know, oftentimes if, if you think about it, if you lived in a world where everyone agreed with you, self-reflection would not exist. Right. The whole, right. The whole reason behind self-reflection is that, you stumble upon an obstacle or a bump that prevents you from just going straight forward this whole time and essentially being an autopilot and not thinking and not being mindful of the decisions you're making. So I think with something like what you mentioned, you know, 
I had similar struggles um, uh, years ago, I think. And that was, I used to think that, okay, when people say that this shouldn't exist or you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z in life, it oftentimes it's not because of the fact that they don't want me to succeed, but it's more so I think that they truly have that good intention of just challenging your thinking. They yes. Don't, they don't know what they don't know, and you're the same way. You only know right. the things you do, and you, I know for a fact, and you do too, that there is so much in this world that you don't know, and you will never know because right. you simply don't ha – we don't have the capacity as human beings nor the time to know everything about this world because – there's just there truly is that that much information, so you have to just you have to be wise and you have to understand. Okay, if I have this much time on this planet, what am I going to dedicate majority of it towards? You know, right. and in a lot of it, like within even this work, I'm sure you're noticing that even though it's um, mission based and you are serving a particular audience. There are also so many other things that you're developing from your end that yes. you wouldn't be able to do probably in any other profession. And that, you know, fit like relationships, figuring out right. ways. How do I even reach out to this person knowing that they have X, Y, and Z? They're going through X, Y, and Z. Um, what are the ways that I can say my message or my brief one-liner that would right. trigger certain things within them that would make them respond in a negative manner. Yes, exactly. So it's all those all those skills, they all play a role. And I, I think that's a huge thing to just for people to recognize in life is that, you know, people don't oftentimes they don't say no or they're not they're negative towards you because they have a problem with you. I think it's it goes back to them challenging your thinking and right. in the negative instances what i've learned to believe is that it's oftentimes a problem with them when someone right. go, when someone says something mean to you or something like that it's not because you did something wrong it's it's because you truly were at a wrong place and a wrong, wrong time and they were going through through a challenge of their own right and i think you know i often say that there's three things, three, three key elements for me um, that I uh, think are tools for success and tools for forward motion and personal growth. And the first one is listening. I, I have to listen. And um, I struggle with it sometimes, of course, you know, when someone is, you know, rough with me or abrasive, um, it's not, it's not as easy to hear those people, mm -hmm. but it is so important that I do. And you know, I've learned, you know, I've, I've had to, you know, toughen up my skin a little bit um, and, you know, being out here. And I know you know that, too. <laughs> and I've had, you know, moments I've got my little feelers hurt. Mm -hmm. um, but I've learned so much from the people um, who have maybe not, you know, come at me as delicately because they have something to say. And it's OK for them to say it to me. And it's OK for me to just listen and to not think that it's personal about me. Yep. Um, sure, sometimes it does become personal about me. Sometimes, you know, I've had people question my intentions. Um, I've had people uh, come at me. Um, and that's just part of living in the world, right? That's yep. just going to happen. And 
But I think, you know, the first thing for me, those three key elements for me are listening, um, persisting, and having grace. Um, I have to listen. I have to persist and keep going and keep moving and just insist that we be heard, insist that the adoptee voice ought to be the most elevated voice within the adoption community. And then I have to have a lot of grace. I have to have a lot of grace for myself. I have to have a lot of grace for other people. And I think that those three things, if, you know, we can really keep those, I mean, you know, it's not the same for everybody, but for me, I just should speak only about me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if I can keep those three elements in the forefront of my mind, um, as my, you know, my, my way of navigating through this really difficult, um, tough, tough, um, world of adoption, I think those three things, you know, are what get me through. I think those are the three things that I have to always keep in mind. Actually, I've been written on my desk. And in any moment of frustration or any moment of feeling discouraged or defeated, and even in the moments of joy and celebration and, you know, where I feel that community so tightly around me, um, I think I have to listen, I have to persist, and I have to have grace. Mm. That's amazing that you were able to stay so humble throughout the entire process and just life in general. What I would like to know is have you... Have you always had that? Was that always a part of you or is that something that developed out of something else? Um, humility? That being that, vulnerable okay. and just... Okay. Well, humility, I wouldn't say it's always been a part of my life. <laughs> um, you know, as I've matured, I, you know, as a kid, I was the overachieving adoptee. I, you know, I kind of fit in that category. So I had to be the best all the time. You know, it was a, you know, I was a singer when I was growing up. So I'm, I had to be the best singer. I had to be the one who performed the best all the time. I had to look the best, um, all those things, uh, you know. So I think that the reality is for me as a mature adult, I mean, you know, with maturity often comes humility. And um, for me, I kind of teased that, you know, years ago, I always say old Rashma. Old Rashma would have loved mm. being the subject of this documentary. <laughs> and, you know, that, that, you know, this is about me and my story and how great this is. And, you know, look at, look at me and my documentary and, you know, new Rashma, although I'm not you know fully evolved, of course, still growing <laughs> every day and I've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, I feel very, um, I don't know even how to, how do I say that? I, I just recognize that I'm really fortunate to have any opportunity for anyone to listen to me. Um, and so the fact that any, even one person, you know, is listening or learning or that something that I say resonates with another adoptee and they think I can, you know, Oh, I can share the reason for all of that is because of all the people who did it before me. Mm. And, um, you know, I've, I've always been a determined person Um, I've always had a lot of empathy. My parents taught me that, um, a lot of empathy and I've also, you know, I'm, I'm passionate. So I kind of go all in. Um, I, I struggle with, you know, finding balance in anything. I tend to be all or nothing. And, um, I want to, um, I don't know. I've been able to, in some regard, not every regard. So this is not, this is not me bragging about being (laughs) humble. I promise (laughs) because that doesn't work, but I have been able to just recognize how much everybody has to offer. And um, there's no need to compete um, with anyone. And that's, you know, even like in adoption land, one of the big things about with deer adoption is I, you know, 
it, it, it's you have to distinguish because I am not dear adoption. Dear adoption is its own thing, and dear adoption is neutral and has no view on adoption. It's simply a platform. Reshma has views on adoption, and you know has my personal opinions. Um, but I would say that the biggest thing with dear adoption that I wanted, and and one of the things I wanted to put of myself in it, is promoting everyone. There's space for all of us. There is space for multiple websites. There is space for multiple podcasts. There is space for books and interviews and articles and films, all of mm -hmm. these things. Um, it's really, really important to recognize that, yes, I believe that my film will have an impact on the community with some people. Some people, it won't. Some people won't like it. Some people will say, I saw this film and this film resonated with me, or I saw that film and that film resonated with me. I'm not looking for to be the most popular. I'm not looking for my film to, quote, do well. I just want to be able to make an impact. Um, when I write about adoption, when I speak about adoption, that's my story on that day, at that moment, at that time. And at while that's happening, all these other people are producing films and sharing their stories and speaking and writing and doing all those things. And it's so important that there's space for all of us, like I said, because we have much to learn. Yeah, I, I feel like I have some things that I could share that would impact people, right? That's mm -hmm. why I share, or I, or I wouldn't do it. So I certainly believe that I have a viewpoint and a perspective that's worth being shared. Um, that being said, in my mind, mine's not at the top, um, and, and nobody's is. Um, I have learned so much by looking and listening within this community, and I've learned a lot from people um, who I've even I've learned a lot from the people who who criticized me um, because I don't know I don't know where that comes from but because I just really feel strongly that if they're criticizing me yeah sure are some people just mean internet trolls yes uh -huh. it's true they exist you know it's 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 true it happens however I've found some really sweet relationships and friendships within the adoption community with um, people who don't necessarily see things the way I do because I was willing to listen to them and because they were willing to listen to me. And so I've had many emails exchanged. I've had many phone conversations where I have said to the person, we can agree to disagree, but I appreciate that you are sharing your perspective because it's really, really important. And I've had that said to me so many times, you know, I don't agree with you, but I appreciate that you're being authentic to who you are and that you're sharing your lived experience and that that's what works for you. And I think if, you know, wouldn't the world just live in so much more harmony if we could all do that? Of course, that's, you know, too difficult. I do but, the world, yeah. Right, right. But I, I have found a lot of that um, in the community. And so for me, it's not, um, I'm not competing with anyone. I'm not competing with myself. I just want to have this platform out there. Will Dear Adoption exist forever? I don't know. But as long as people come to me and as long as you know and there's value in it I will you know share stories and put other stories out there because I've just learned that you know my story isn't more important than anyone's my perspective isn't more important than anyone's it may resonate with some people but it doesn't resonate with everyone mm -hmm. and it's important for me to share but it is more important for me to listen mm. Final thought for today's episode. When odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles 
that you always refer to? When odds are against me, I would say that um, I really believe that we can make a difference in our most trying times. So I really believe that for me, um, the odds have been against me many times in my life and maybe, maybe always, maybe there's a consistent thread of, uh, maybe there's a consistent thread even of the odds being against me all my life. You know, the church would say, you know, you were found in a slum and this is your testimony. And, you know, of course, like you were, you were created to do something better, but you know, that's not really the, the school of thought that I subscribe to necessarily. Um, I feel really strongly that um, when the odds are against me, I persist. And I think about all the people who have done so much work so that I can even create a website mm-hmm. and have space. And um, I think, again, I would go back to those three core things, listening, persisting, and having grace. And those kind of seem to be the things that get me through. Um, I have a really wonderful support system and family. Um, I'm married to just the sweetest guy. Uh, He's good looking too. Um, (laughs) But, and he, you know, will listen to me, you know, talk about adoption relentlessly. Um, And, you know, he will, you know, can, I can share my grief. I have, I have a lot of safe space. Um, So I can share my grief with my dad who I love and adore um, my, my adoptive father. I hate, I hate saying it that way because for me, it's just not what it feels like, but, Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell him that I'm wondering about my Indian father and he doesn't feel threatened by that. And that creates a safe space for me. And I think that, you know, that's something I really just encourage families to do. It's so important, this listening and persisting and having grace. Like really, we ought to do that in all of our relationships. And when we're in (laughs) any, in any trial, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever we're struggling or, you know, we're fearful or we're concerned or we're excited, all of those things, you know, those have to be in place. And, um, I think, you know, because I have the support that I have, it really frees me up to do a lot of things that, um, that, that I, I may not otherwise be able to do. That being said, a lot of adopted people don't have and haven't had the kind of support that I've had and they're still doing great things. So I think for me, I'm not as strong a person as they are. And so I think it's, you know, I needed that support so that I could really, you know, make an impact and make a difference. It's a, it's a game changer for me. Um, Other people, you know, have a greater, more profound degree of resilience than I do. And, you know, that's why I want to listen to those people. That's why I want to, you know, elevate those people. And, uh, you know, it's exciting. It's an exciting time. Um, it's a frustrating time, but it's really exciting because there are, you know, Oleg's out there and there are all these other, you know, people out there who are just determined to share and to persist and to listen and to grow, you know, based on what we learn from other people. And uh, I think if we, you know, keep those things in the forefront of our minds and keep, you know, moving forward, that uh, gets us through the really the tougher times, you know, that gets us through the, the, the pushback, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, the pushback hasn't gone anywhere. Um, I still believe there's a shift that's happening. And, and, and we are so fortunate. We get to be a part of that. We are a part of the shift. I mean, that's exciting. Like, I love that we're in this together. We're on this team. We're team shift, mm-hmm. you know? 
Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If this is your first time listening to a podcast, or if you've missed an episode or two, feel free to check out our entire archive at overcomingodds.today forward slash podcast. Also, I highly recommend that you register for our upcoming seminar as soon as possible. Don't miss out on this wonderful opportunity to hear from breathtaking speakers such as Jim Bricker, Joshua Banks, Peter Stropel, Leslie Johnson, Adele Harris, Anne Heffron, and myself included. Once again, thank you all for listening, and we look forward to having you next week.